First Samuel, we have this transition to where Israel asks um, God for a king, and though um, it wasn't the right time for that, and they shouldn't have asked for that, the, God says, okay, I'll give you what you want, but it's going to be trouble for you, and people say, well, give us what we want anyway. <laughs> and uh, they get Saul as their king, and he starts well, but then last week we saw um, he made a mistake in that he offers a sacrifice and, you know, as we say, he didn't stay in his lane. He didn't have that, um, that wasn't his role. He wasn't a priest. And so um, the kingdom is going to be taken from him. It's going to, there's going to be some time before that, that happens. And there's going to be some, some good things that he does and some bad things that he does. And moving forward, I think the, the bad outweighs, you know, the good. Um, unfortunately, um, in his in his life, but his son Jonathan, we're going to see continue to be strong in the Lord and to be consistent in his walk with God. Um, and there's a really just a powerful lesson, and just to, to put this out here at the forefront, um, you know, each person has to make their own decision of whether they're going to follow God or not. You know, regardless of what family they grow up in, if the, if the parents aren't following God, the child still has to, at some point in life, make a decision, am I going to follow God? Um, if, the, if the parents love God, the child is still, at some point in life, has to say, you know, am I going to love and follow God? Um, and, and that's a, a reality of it. We can, we can start off at a disadvantage or an advantage, but at the end of the day, it's still each person before Almighty God. Um, Jonathan, we never once um, see Jonathan use his father's failures as an excuse for anything in his own life. Because at the end of the day, we're each responsible and held, you know, accountable. And I mean, yes, I know the Lord does factor in, you know, our circumstances. Um, certainly, He's aware, but at the same time. Um, you know, he's not going to pronounce someone innocent or guilty just based on what family they came from. So let's keep that in mind and be encouraged by the example of Jonathan um, this morning. So let's um, just want to pick up where we left off last week in uh, chapter 13, verse 16. Uh, we'll read a little bit and then we'll, we'll get into it this morning. Um, and so... You know, again, just from last week, it, it ended with Samuel coming and saying the, 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 you know, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Um, and obviously that affects Jonathan, because the kingdom is going to be taken from Jonathan as well. Um, but the Philistines are set up to attack, and they have chariots and horsemen and a huge army and... At this point, you know, Saul started with 3,000 men, and now he's down to 600. You know, his back was up against the wall is, you know, one of the reasons he, he failed in the, in the first place. But it says, 
here, um, at the end of verse 15, Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, let the Hebrews make themselves, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge with two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan and his son had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass, the pass of Michmash. Um, again, we see, you know, not only are they severely outnumbered, but they don't have weapons. You know, the Philistines really had dominated for a long time um, and had such power and authority that they could say, you know, no Israelite is, a, is allowed to be a blacksmith. That's a lot of control. When you're able to tell an entire nation, an entire people group, you can't have a blacksmith in case you make weapons to fight against us. You can see who the dominant you know, force, um, force is. But Jonathan, Saul and Jonathan, you know, had, a, had um, sword and spear, but they're the, the only ones who had them. Um, wow. So, the, you talk about odds being stacked against you. My goodness. So let's pick up in verse chapter 14 and continue to read just a little more. It says, One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Etub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozezes, and the other was Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with your, your heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, but we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to the armor bearer, Come after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We, we thank you for your love and for your goodness to us, God. We pray as we study your word this morning that you would teach us from it, that you would encourage us by it. Lord, help us to walk with you in spirit um, and in truth. Um, help us to be of good courage. Help us not to look at things um, through our, our fleshly eyes, but through spiritual eyes, and that we could see, Lord, that when you are with us, who could stand against us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your great love for us and your goodness. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, I just want to get, uh, before we, we see what happens after that, um, just a little bit of this, of this scene, you know, make sure it's clear in our heads, because you see, again, the courage of Jonathan. You know, he gets up with his armor bearer, doesn't tell anybody else where he's He's going and says, you know, let's go over to that, that garrison, the Philistine garrison at, at Mishmash. And you could see him, and you just imagine him in the camp just being like, you know, at, when most people are afraid and are kind of hoping that, you know, there's not going to be a battle. Most people are afraid, thinking, hey, if there's a battle, we're going to get slaughtered. But Jonathan is like, where's the battle? I'm ready to go fight. Because I know that God can save, what do he say? By many or by few. See, Jonathan understood the spiritual reality and the spiritual math that the flesh couldn't understand. You see, the flesh just looked at, they have this huge army, we hardly have anyone. We're going to get slaughtered. But Jonathan knew the spiritual math. Jonathan knew that the Lord is greater than any opposing force. That because he had the Lord on his side, he was actually in the majority. That victory was easy for God. You got God on one side. You see, Jonathan's looking at it and going, there's the true and living God on one side, and there's the enemy, you know, the Philistines on the other side. That's how he's looking at it. He's not looking at it like, oh, we have 600 men, and they have thousands upon thousands of chariots and horsemen and multitude of soldiers. You know, we've got God. Doesn't matter what they have. We have Yahweh. We have the true and living God of the universe. Doesn't matter what they have. And so he takes his arm bearer and says, you know, let's go. But he doesn't do so in a in a cocky way because he knows that it has to be the Lord's victory. He knows He's not going to just with his sword and his fleshly strength go and defeat all the Philistines. And so he says, we're going to go and we're going to show ourselves to them. And if they say, hey, wait till we come to you, you know, we're going to just, we're just going to wait. We're going to hold our ground. Because they mean like, we're going to come kill you eventually. Not like we're running down here right now. But if they say, come on up to us, then we know the Lord has given them in their hand. And, and it's an exact, actually, it's an interesting thing because it's either like humility. If they show any sign of humility, we're just going to wait. But if they show their, their fleshly arrogance, which we would expect them to show, you know, then we're just going to go. The Lord's going give to them, give them to us. If they show some humility, it might be that that's a sign that, whoa, something's different here. Maybe the Lord doesn't want us to go because they're doing what's not in their flesh. Because their flesh is to talk trash, right? I mean, they've got the majority. They've got all the power. I mean, they're like, you know, we're going to dunk in your face and then tell you about it. 
You know, like that's that's their mentality. They say, you know, basically come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. You know, they're, they're talking they're talking trash and I mean, again, you would expect them to talk the trash. They've got you know, all the people and all the soldiers and everything else. And it's an interesting place where um, Jonathan and his armor bearer go in in this little pass with the with these you know rocky cracks on each side, and you know really um, you know the Philistines put a garrison there, but they don't want to fight a war there. They don't want to fight a war there because that's a narrow place, and then once you get up to the top, it's just a small piece of uh, flat land. Okay, so they, they want to like protect and make sure that the, the, that the Israelites don't come through that way. But they're not going to fight a battle. They don't want to fight a war there. Because that's not to their advantage. You know, their advantage is to fight in an open plain, you know, big field, you know, big plain sort of situation where they can take advantage of their chariots and their horsemen, you know, their cavalry. Uh, so they're not interested in, in, in fighting a, a real war there, but they're going to hold it. And there's just a couple of Hebrews coming. I mean, this isn't going to be, you know, tough for us. Now, in verse 12, it said, you know, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Now, what's awesome here, too, is Jonathan, the armor bearer, obviously these two guys are, are, are tight. But, you know, and, and the armor bearer also has courage. Yeah, and it's certainly easier to have courage in the Lord when there's at least one other person to have courage you know, with you. As the proverb, what does the proverb say? You know, if one falls you know, in a ditch, he's in trouble, but there's another to help, and a, a cord of three is not easily broken. Well, well, here, what do you have? You have God, Jonathan, his armor bearer. And they are a majority. He's, you know, the armor bearer had said, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. You know, he's willing, if it comes to it, just to die with Jonathan. That's a brave dude. That's a courageous dude. In verse 13, it says, And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, well, it says here, but, you know, a half acre of land. I don't, you know, how precise that is. Um, the, the literal is um, how much a pair of oxen, a, amount of land that a pair of oxen could plow in half a day. That's the literal, <laughs> you know, phrase. It's kind of like we would describe things today like, uh, it was a football field, or two football fields, or three football fields. You know, that's and, and you know that's how we think about you know if we're trying to describe a space, you know, to someone, they're going to do it. And how much an oxen can plow in a certain amount of time is like, well, that's three days worth of plowing that size. You know, that's how they would describe, you know, you things. Um, so you know, it's not a huge piece of land um, that he does this on, but it's but it's it's there, and they take out. Jonathan is and his armor bearer take out twenty dudes. Twenty. Obviously, the Lord 
you know, was with them and, and they used that courage. Um, the scripture says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, verse 15 says, And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked. So there was a very great trembling. There are gods at work there, right? Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they were here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Elijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark at the time of the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise was, was in the Philistines' camp, continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp and the surrounding country, also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who hid in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Now, just as a little bit of um, geographical context, this is... This all happens about seven miles north, slightly northeast of Jerusalem. Now, at this point, Jerusalem, you know, isn't like the the capital and everything like it becomes um, under David. Uh, but just want to give you that that reference for for where this is historically. And you can see again, you know, God fought for them. He creates the earthquake. He creates the confusion in the camp. You know, Philistines start slaughtering each other. Um, you know, that's definitely a confused situation for them. That's something that, that God did for them. And, and we see God do that, um, you know, really, you know, just multiple times throughout in the Old, the Old Testament where God fights um, for them and creates a, a victory. And it was really, you know, it's, it's Jonathan's faith that uh, moves God to act on the behalf of the of the Israelites. You see, where his father, you know, responded in fear and responded in the flesh and tried to take matters into his own hands and viewed things in terms of, you know, what can I solve and what problems can I solve? You know, Jonathan looked at things in the spirit in terms of God is with us, who can be against us? So a very different outlook. A very different outlook on the world and the universe. A very different outlook on God and God's power. Jonathan had that pure heart, that courage and the the wisdom and the ability to see that despite his father having more years, his father didn't really have. There's a difference in character fundamentally. You know, you even saw that back earlier when, you know, they're going to make Saul king and there he's, you know, he's hiding. You know, in this situation, you know, that was like a positive situation. They want to make him king, he's hiding. You know, here, 
you know, most people are hiding in caves for their lives, and Jonathan is like, nah, I ain't doing that. I'm ready to fight. You know, he just had a completely different outlook. And, and perspective, our outlook, our perspective, it, it matters, you know, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we have a tendency in life to look at our lives and look at situations and go, well, you know, odds are kind of stacked against me and it's just kind of, you know, you're almost like defeated before you start. You have, you have that, you know, and you kind of listen to the doubters and the, you know, that's too tough for you and that's, you know, you probably don't want to take that sort of risk and, you know, all this stuff. Or do you live life with a, but it's really just a matter of me figuring out what God wants me to do. See, because the issue isn't whether it can be done or not. Because, you know, with God, it's possible. If he's asked me to do it. My job is just to seek his will. There's nothing that he's going to put at my feet, put on my table that's too big. Because he's with me. Now, that doesn't give me a right just to go and to, like, make my own agenda. But it does give me a right to seek out God's agenda and then to pursue that with passion. It does give me that. You see, Jonathan was convinced that God's will was for Israel to have victory and to be its own autonomous nation you know, in the promised land. He believed that that was God's will. He knew it from the scriptures, you know, through the prophets that had been given before. He knew it from the first five books of the scripture. He knew it. And he believed God. And so, you know, when we think about that in, in our context, is we've been given a mission. We've been given the Great Commission. When you think about that, you know, in those terms, so well, what has God given us to do? Because there's nothing too big for Him. There's nothing He can't be done in his, through His power and in His name. So how does He want me to participate in the mission then? And then we can be bold and take some risk for God, knowing that we're in His hands. And that nothing can hurt us without God being okay with that. We can see you live with some freedom. It doesn't mean to be reckless, but there may be things that look reckless in the world's eyes. But they're not reckless before God. We've got to recognize the difference between those things. The question is, has, has God put you in a position and asked you to do it? And, and Jonathan knew that he wasn't supposed to spend his life hidden in a cave. But he was to live his life boldly before God. So it says, the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Now here's a little note that... Um, you might enjoy from a historical perspective because, you know, sometimes it just really pays to know your Bible. So in World War I, um, the British are fighting the Turkish army in Israel. Um, 
in this land, the same land, and they're in the same area. And there's a major who, uh, his name is Major Gilbert, um, and he's there and he's like, I've heard of this place, Micmash. It's in, I know it's in the Bible. I know, it's in, I know I've heard this. And so he's up late into the night reading his Bible, you know, because he doesn't have Google, right? He doesn't have a Bible app. He can't just put in, you know, Micmash and, you know, and that's not like, you know, the most common of words. So even if he had a Bible at that time that had a few key words, that one's not going to be there. You know, so he's pouring over his Bible in the middle of the night. He finds First Samuel 13 and 14. Goes and wakes up the general Appleby in the middle of the night and says, I found it. This is it. And they study this passage and study the land. He sends out, they send out scouts and they find this same pass. And they use this same pass in the cover of darkness to attack the... Turkish garrison that was there and win this land and win this victory. It was very practical for them <laughs> to know their Bibles. It actually said, you know, many of the men, you know, when they're, they're in this land, they carried their Bibles, you know, with them, you know, for those who are believers for, for spiritual reasons, but, but more of them even for just the practical reasons of, like, where is this place? And, like, looking at map, you know, the map in their Bible and figuring out where things are. And using that to their, to their advantage. Uh, and that, this is, like, the, the, like, case book, clear example of that. It's like, knowing his Bible paid off. <laughs> and, you know, knowing, at least knowing that it's there somewhere. At least no one was there somewhere. Uh, and then having the wisdom to, to follow that same plan to go, well, if it worked for Jonathan, maybe it would work for us. And they went and used the same, same thing. It's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> so let's hop into verse 24. It says, The men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, so the people were very faint, and the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they, took, then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. 
So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them there. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Uh, let's stop there for a minute and just talk about a couple of these things that are here. So we see the Saul, you know, rashly puts the people under this oath. You know, he's just so into it that he's like, you know, nobody's going to eat until I take full vengeance on my enemies. Let's go, let's go battle, right? But it's not a wise thing because this isn't, you know, a short deal. It's going to, you know, last. You know, all day could go into the night, could go into the next day. You know, the people, you know, he's, well, he says until evening. He puts them under the oath till evening, so there's a limit to it. But it's it's a foolish thing, and and Jonathan, you know, hasn't heard, and so he tastes it, and you hear his his frustration. You know, my father has troubled the land. You know, and and it's what's really interesting throughout Jonathan's life. We'll see this more and more is that he understands that his father is, is not the best leader. And there's times where he expresses frustration over this, but he's always loyal. It's an interesting thing in his life uh, that we'll look at a little bit more in, in coming weeks. Um, but wow. And so then, it gets, when it gets to evening and the people can eat, I mean, you talk about being hungry... You know, this isn't like um, sushi or something, you know. I mean, you're talking, these are sheep and, and oxen, you know, and stuff. I mean, you know, these people are, are just killing them and, like, taking a bite out. Like, I mean, they are hungry beyond hungry. You know, when you're hungry, when you're, like, really hungry, I mean, really, really hungry, you will do some things. You know, when you are, like, in a desperate for calories you know, situations like, you know, I mean, some of us eat insects voluntarily, but not most of us. But when you're that hungry, you'll just, my daughter's one that eats them when we're down in Mexico. They have these like roasted grasshoppers with spices on them or whatever, or, or they kind of candy them or whatever. I mean, she'll eat a bag of those, like, bah, 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 bah. you know, like, so, you know, but most of us are like, give me the insects, you know, like this. But if you're really, really, really hungry, man, I don't think there's a person in this room who's going to refuse some grasshoppers, some fried grasshoppers. That's just like, you, you're going to do it. You know, you're that hungry. But, you know, just to grab, like, to grab a, a, a sheep and to, to just, like, kill it and start chewing on it, <laughs> that's, that's like next level. <laughs> you know, that's really next level. But the issue here is that they're eating, um, you know, the animal with the blood in it and We'll talk about what this with me, means. But Saul does the right thing here. Um, now, it would have been unnecessary if he had let the people eat during the day. You know, um, but he says, bring a stone to me. You know, he's going to slaughter them. And then <coughs> the, food, the food could be prepared and, and eaten. So what is this eating with, with the blood? And this is a graphic. I mean, this is, but it's just the reality of it. And... You know, so when you would kill kill an animal by slitting the throat and then hanging it up so that the blood 
drains out of it is how this is supposed to be done and, and works. In some cultures, you know, they would do like a strangulation sort of thing. It would leave the blood in it. But blood is, is precious in the scriptures. The scripture takes the perspective that blood of human and animal is, is precious, is, is meaningful, because the life is in the blood. Okay, so there were these prohibitions about there's certain things you could do and certain things you couldn't do in terms of how you prepared, you know, your food. And there was a, a respect. Like you don't, you know, you don't cook a young animal in its mother's milk. You know, it's just, it's just de- de- deemed disrespectful. Um, not having a, a proper view of creation. That, yes, God gave us um, the ability to lord over it but we're supposed to do so with some, some respect and some care. You know, there's an environmental stewardship in that dominion that God gave you know, Adam in the beginning. There's an there's a environmental stewardship that's supposed to carry over to God's people throughout history. You know, practical application is like, you know, God's people shouldn't be driving down the road throwing the trash out the window. You know, it's not respectful of the creation that God gave us. You know, so there's, you know, you can apply that out. Now, of course you can apply that too far and put on prohibitions on people that God didn't put. But here was something that he gave, and it's even in the New Testament, you know, that they weren't supposed to eat, you know, animals that they knew were sacrificed to idols or that had been strangled, things that still had the blood in it. This doesn't have to do anything with whether you like your steak, you know, well done or medium rare. God's not saying you can't have medium rare steak. It's about that preparation before you ever have the steak. Does that make sense? Before that piece of meat is cut. It's about the initial process um, of, of how the animal is, is prepared. Um, so, they weren't supposed to do that. And then... And, you know, things are kind of made right in that area. Now, Saul says, you know, let's continue. Let's go at night. Let's continue to pursue. The people are with them. You know, now they're refreshed now that they've, they've eaten. Do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, you know, hold on a second. Let us draw near to God. Verse 37. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and no one see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, and my son Jonathan not be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan 
and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So, you know, Saul had made this irrational oath, right? He made an irrational oath. He put everybody under it. And it's one of those things, it's kind of like a speed limit sign. Even if you didn't see the sign that said 35, if you're going 65 and the cop pulls you over and you're like, well, I didn't see the sign. It's like, well, tough luck. You know, you're still guilty. This is kind of that sort of scenario here. Um, you know, Saul, I think he's taking very, you know, literally, I mean, look at Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes his vow to the Lord or swears and oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You know, he made an oath to the Lord and he's supposed to follow through on that. And, you know, I think it's easy, you know, and in some sense, I mean, the people of Israel kind of fall into the same line of thinking. It's easy for us to go, well, wait, 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 that's not rational. He didn't hear this. It was a kind of an irrational, you know, oath anyway. I mean, let's not get carried away here. Let's not go kill the man. But we also have to understand, you know, there's a there's a guilt and innocence side of it, and it's like Jonathan's guilty. He's guilty. Okay. Um, Jonathan acknowledges he's guilty. You know, we got wait. Well, that's not rational. Well. He's guilty. And then there's the, you know, the honor-shame of it. Of, you know, for Saul to be honorable, he has to fulfill his oath. And, you know, the, the people, though, recognize the bigger picture. And what's interesting here is that, you know, you think the people are just kind of hoping that Saul's going to kind of come to a, a different conclusion when he sees what's actually happening and, you know, he's just kind of talking big. Because they they don't say anything. They're just like, do what seems good to you. Your family or us. We know we didn't do it. We know he did. You know, you know it's kind of easy to be say to say, do what seems good to you when you kind of already know who's guilty and innocent, and they already knew who was guilty and innocent. And they're like, do what seems good to you. You know. And then it goes to Saul and Jonathan, and it's Jonathan, and it's like, wait, wait a second, Saul actually might kill his own son here. And then at that point, they go from being timid and we're not going to say anything to, all right, we got we to gotta step up and say, say something. Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Shall Jonathan die who's accomplished this? Because he has worked with God this day. They recognized that it was Jonathan, ultimately, that his courage that you know, brought the, all of this um, about because he trusted that the Lord would work and the Lord would work in um, and through him. So, it's a, it's a powerful thing. There's, a, there's some lessons here for us. You know, Proverbs 20, 25, this is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterwards to reconsider. You know, so there was even a proverb there. Um, 
you're going to keep this in mind, like, don't make that rash, that rash oath, that rash, you know, vow. Don't do, you know, don't have that sort of thing in you that Saul had that would make him, you know, say these sort of things. But then Jesus takes it even further if we look at Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 33 through 37. Matthew chapter 5, 33 through 37. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And so here, you know, where like Jesus takes it a step further and says, you know, don't even yes, don't make rash oaths, but even you know, don't be swearing by heaven. Why? Well, that's where where God resides. Or by earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You know, and it's basically like, again, know your place. Know how, in, in the great scheme of things, that you're, you're weak. You can't turn one hair of your head, you know, one color or another. <clears throat> Gray away or whatever. Um, you know, not... <laughs> <laughs> Notwithstanding, I mean, they had dyes back then too. I mean, they could have put a bunch of purple dye on their head, and they could have gone purple if they wanted to, you know. In 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 these days, but we talking about it's like a natural thing, like just thinking about it and going, you know, tired of any gray in my hair, I'm just going to turn that all back to its original color. You know, like we don't have that power. Um, we don't have that power. So just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. You know, be truthful. Don't try to manipulate, you know, God, you know, and people. You know, a lot of times what we what happens with oaths, you know, oaths to God are to try to, in many times, are a way to try to like manipulate God. You know, God, you know, people all the time are like, "Well, God, if you do, you know, X, Y, or Z, well, then I'll follow you." You know, if if, if you cure my child, then I'll follow you. You know, kind of put God to a thing like that. Well, just yes or no. Are you going to follow the Lord or not? You know, are you going to do it or not? When, when we're put in a situation um, where somebody asks us if we're going to do something, well, you know, it, that manipulation a lot of times is, you know, like, why well, swear on my grandmother's grave? Well, well, what is that? That's a way to try to convince. Yeah, if you would um, turn to number 57, 57, 57.
How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch's treasure. Great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no powers, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. What should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground. He's in the room, song. 
heights of love or depths of peace But fears are still when striving cease My comforter, my all in all He is the love of Christ I stand Is this alone? I see don't flash. Uh, we can sing 25. I know I, I can do that one, so. Um, yeah. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I rise and go to Jesus. 
He will embrace me in His arms. And in the arms of my Savior, there are 10,000 charms. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God to bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance and every grace that brings you nigh. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms And in the arms of my dear Savior There are ten thousand charms Come ye weary heavy laden lost in ruin by the fall if you tarry until you're better you will never come at all I will arise and go to Jesus he will embrace me in his arms and in the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms There are 10,000 charms Eighty-four. I'll take a look at her. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know about this one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can, I can do that, man. <laughs> All right, number one, again. Here we go. <laughs> Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. 
Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me. Let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul. I worship Your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. I worship Your holy name. All right, if you would, just turn to number 66. 66. And we'll, I guess, sing one last song. All right. And st- also stand. Uh, stand as well. Okay. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. 
and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song should ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song should ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When with the ransomed in glory, his face at last I shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing his love for me. And how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song should ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. All right. You guys.